seated this morning. At this time, I'm going to dismiss our children downstairs to the Gospel Project to have a wonderful time this morning in God's Word. Welcome to Renovation Church this morning. My name is Jeremy Calley. I'm one of the elders here. Mike Maisie and Bernie, our other two elders, are in Scotland this morning, and uh, we've been praying for them. And for those of you who've been following us on Facebook, you've probably seen some videos and some pictures, and uh, excited to hear from them about what God is doing down in Scotland and how we, uh, as a church, may be able to partner um, with them down there or wherever that is. It's not down over there. Yeah, not very good at geography. You can tell. Um, welcome this morning. We are in our series. This is our third week in the book of Judges. You may, you may ask yourself, um, why? <laughs> Judges is, is a difficult book, but it is the Word of God, amen? And it is incredibly relevant to us this morning as we've been looking at it. Judges chapter 3 is where we are. If you turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, we're going to read it in a moment. Judges chapter 3 may be the reason why barely anybody preaches out of the book of Judges. Um, as I read Judges chapter 3 this morning, uh, again, I recognized uh, how, listen, this is, this, is a, this is NC, this is rated R, all right? <laughs> Let me just... Let me just tell you, this is not Disney Channel. This is not Samson on a felt board downstairs in Sunday school. Uh, the book of Judges, really, uh, they, they didn't sit and, and read the book of Judges back then like, like a book club. Let's read Judges together. These were stories that they told, that they sat around, that they passed on, that they told to each other. And this book was, was a, a history of the people of Israel that was put together around the time of... Uh, Samuel, and, and this, this book um, really uh, was a, a pretty crude, rough history, but stories that brought them great joy, as they would tell them, together. And we have now come through the first two chapters, which are overviews, or almost outlines of the entire book of Judges. The last two weeks have really been two separate introductions to the book of Judges, explaining this time period in the history of Israel after Joshua died. Remember, Moses and Aaron led them out of Egypt into the land, or, or into the desert, and then, and then they took the land of the Canaanites as Joshua led them, and they went in and they were supposed to purge that land and, and eradicate the Canaanites and, and take that land as the land that God had promised to them. And what we see is after the death of Joshua, they have done anything but purge the land of the Canaanites, and now they dwell in this land with the Canaanites, and this time period represents the time after the death of Joshua and before any kings. What we've seen in the first two chapters of the book of Judges is a cycle. We see a cycle of disobedience and sin and idolatry that, that causes God to burn with anger and then bring about judgment upon his people. He chastises them. He disciplines them. But they are not uh, outside of his covenant. 
and disciplined in that way. They are people of the covenant, and God disciplines them for the purpose of what? Of, of causing them to recognize their sin, and they cry out to God, and God, because not because they're repentant, and not because they're so great, but because God is great, and God is faithful, and God keeps his word, and God keeps his covenant, God raises up for them judges that bring about deliverance. And we see the cycle over and over and over again. And today, we're going to talk about the first two judges, Othniel and Ehud. And these are two, uh, the two first judges, Othniel. We'll see a very brief narrative about Othniel, who really becomes a paradigm judge for all the judges. We see Othniel in this brief description of, of him as someone with the least amount. He was he was not Christ, he was a flawed judge, but we see a lack of flaws described in the book of Judges about Othniel. We see Othniel is, a, is the best example of a judge. And if you were to contrast Othniel to Samuel, who, or, or I'm sorry, Samson, who's incredibly flawed, you would see this difference. Because as the cycles continue throughout the book of Judges, it becomes progressively worse. And then we see Ehud. We're going to read about Ehud. The story of Ehud is gross. I'm sorry. It's the Bible. <laughs> and we're going to read it. And if young people are here, I will do my best and parents can explain it later in the car. <clears throat> and we're going to see God's deliverance in this. So let's read it together. Say, stop talking about it. Let's read it. Judges chapter 3, it's, we're, we're really discussing verses 7 through 31, but without telling the uh, tech people, I'm going to start in verse 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, really all of the ites, that's not in there, and their daughters... They took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishthim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishthim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. I'm going to stop there before we move on to Ehud. We see Othniel, the first judge. 
And what we see is during this time period, as they inhabited the land with the Canaanites, that moral relativism reigned. There was a polytheism uh, of these people that, that the people of Israel, as their daughters were married off to Canaanites, began to serve their gods, plural. And really, it, it, we, we see this in, in chapter 2, they, they forgot the God of Israel. It's not that they forgot who God was, they didn't forget God, but, but God, the God of Israel, the God that had redeemed them, the God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt, the God that had, had uh, used Moses and Joshua for them to, to leave bondage and slavery and to come into the land, this, this God of Israel that, that parted the Red Sea, this God of Israel that was a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, this God of Israel that did many miracles, they began to forget him and serve other gods in that he became less real for them. Moral relativism reigned. A period of confusion, degradation, and apostasy. The threat of religious assimilation was very real. And God's anger raged. God became angry. And God judged them. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Ristium. Now, this name really isn't his proper name. This is a name that rhymed and that the people of Israel, as they told this story, they used this name, almost like, um, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein. We would, you know, we, we would refer to him as the Butcher of Baghdad, right? This, this, this name was a nickname, was a rhyming name that they would use to explain who this guy was that the Lord used really in discipline, that the Lord used in the judgment of Israel. And his name meant doubly dark. That's really what his name meant just to describe how bad he was. The doubly dark guy came. And they would use it in the telling of this story. Just to show he was a really bad guy. And God raises up Othniel. God raises up Othniel, and you don't see that he raises up the armies of the people of Israel to go with him. Really, he raises up Othniel almost on his own. And Othniel goes, and there's not a lot of detail here. There's really not. He doesn't really uh, have a lot of flash. As we read Ehud, you're going to wish there was a little less detail. But in the story of Othniel, there's not a lot of detail. There's really no flash as they describe it. And we see the beginning of this cycle. Sin, God's anger, they cry out for help, and God's delivering. And Othniel becomes this paradigm which God wants us to see in the other judges. And you say to yourself, why is there not a lot of detail in relationship to Othniel. I want you to look back at this and look at how many times the word Lord is used. The Lord raised up. The Lord did this. The Lord did that. And I think what we see and what rises out of this passage is it's really not about Othniel at all. It's about a faithful, faithful God who delivers his people. Amen? It's about the Lord. It's not about Othniel. The Lord delivers even when his people are in the midst of their sin. Even when his people have walked away from him and forgotten him. And I love what, how, what Tim Keller says about this. He says, it's not that they forgot 
It's not that they don't remember who God is. It's not that they don't remember that they have a God. It's not that they, they don't remember it. But what happens is, as they're assimilating into this culture, we see the Baals and the Astros. And what did, uh, besides the, the awful sexual perversion that went along with worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, what were they? Baal was this, this god of prosperity. And, and, and Ashtoreth was this, was this god of fertility and having many children. And, and, you know, in today's culture in America, you think, why is that good? We want our boy and our girl and then vasectomy, right? But, you know, but, but in that day, having many children was, was good. It was a good thing. It was desired. You would pass on your name. You would pass on your family. You would have people to take care of you when you got older and work your land and, and see crops come and, and, and bring in the crops. And so you wanted many children. You wanted many people to pass on your name, to pass on your family, to, to be able to work your farm and work the land and take care of you as you got older. So the ability to bear children and to be fertile was a huge deal. They wanted as many children as possible. What we see is God, in this, pa- in this passage, is sovereign, is he not? He's in control of every area of our lives. You see, God, in the covenant, promised. If we were faithful to the covenant, he would prosper our land and he would prosper us. This is what God, the people of Israel are thinking. And then you see stories in the Bible like Hannah, can't bear children. See stories in the Bible of God's covenant people going through difficulty. What what began to happen here? You see, this is not unlike us today. They began to look at their neighbors. Say, wow, my neighbor's crops are pretty good this year. And mine don't seem to be as good. Maybe Baal can help me out. Maybe Ashtaroth can help me have some more kids. You know, God is good. The faithful God of Israel who brought us out of Egypt is pretty awesome. But the neighbors seem to be doing pretty good, and they've had three sons. And, and, and we're struggling to conceive and to have a baby. So instead of trusting in the sovereignty of the God, who is the only true God, who delivered me, who, who rescued us out of the land of Egypt, maybe I ought to throw in a little Baal worship. Maybe I ought to throw in a little Astaroth worship and see if we, we can have as many sons as our neighbor had. Maybe we do a little Baal worship and see if we can have a better crop this year, kind of along with our God. You see what's happening here? Is this not unlike today? Is this not unlike the distraction of today, the assimilation of today, the difficulty of today? So many of us, so many times, uh, instead of trusting in the sovereignty and in the love of the God who saved us and redeemed us and has called us, when, when we encounter struggle, when we encounter difficulty, and, uh, instead of accepting the reality that the God who loves us and is sovereign and in control, the reality that he's given us because life maybe isn't turning out just how I thought it should, we begin to turn to what? Other gods. Other things that begin to take the place of God that may fill that need, that may fill that desire, that may bring some kind of satisfaction instead of finding our satisfaction in the God who loves us and who's sovereign. See the people of Israel struggling with this and assimilating in a way that's not dissimilar from us today. 
You hear what I'm saying? Anybody? Nod? All right. We see Othniel deliver. And it says that he prevailed over him. And as you look at Othniel's prevailing over the doubly dark king who's been oppressing them for eight years... It's interesting, as you look at commentaries, they're not really sure who it's referring to. Is this referring to God delivered them or Othniel delivered them? And there's actually some, some question about that. And you see commentators write that, that, that what's illustrated in this is, is that in delivering, God uses people. Amen? But at the end of the day, it's still God delivering us. You see, after oppression for eight years, Othniel prevails over the people. I want to talk about a few things this morning as we look at these two narratives. I want to talk about, first, identity that's lost. Identity that's lost. I want to talk about unwelcomed, the unwelcomed grace of discipline in this passage. And I want to talk about the surprising gift of a deliverer. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what identity that's lost. You see, you got to ask the question, what did God want when he brought them into the promised land? What was supposed to happen when he brought Israel out of the, into the promised land, out of the land of Egypt, was Israel was supposed to take the land, subdue the land, drive out the Canaanites, and they were supposed to Israelitize, is that a word? Israelitize the Canaanites and drive them out dispossessed the Canaanites. But what happened is Israel got Canaanized instead of Israelitizing them. Making up words here, but do you understand what I'm saying? Their identity began to get lost. Their identity began to change. People who are identified by the I am by Yahweh, who says, you are my people. I am the I am. I am Yahweh. I am your God. And I identify who you are. Your identity is in me. As they went into the land of Canaan, instead of demonstrating by displacing them, demonstrating how great God was and how good God was and how awesome God was and displaying the glory of God to everyone around them as God's people, what happened is they began to get immersed in the culture and lose that identity and begin to search for identity in other things. Lost identity. You know, Bernie mentioned this last week, and, and I can't help, it, it's been on my mind ever since we've been studying this. In Judges chapter 2, we see in each of these cycles... It says, everyone began to do what was right in their own eyes. The next generation knew not God. They did not know the God of their fathers. And they lost their identity as the next generation came. And, and, and it's so old school, as Bernie said it, to say, we really should spend time weekly together assembling and worshiping God. It's so old school to say, together we should come to the Lord's table consistently. 
to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, to remember the God of the universe who redeemed us, who saved us. It's so old school to say that the church, that the assembling and worshiping of God together should be a priority in our lives. And what I've watched happen over the last 20 years of actually being a part of ministry, and even before that as a kid in church, is is we have in so many ways begun an evangelicalism America to lose our identity, have we not? To pass on the reality and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our young people. Can I tell you, the grandkids of this generation of evangelicalism, if we don't start preaching the Bible in church, are not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. I watched a famous preacher, and I, I'm going to be careful, famous preacher who's wrote dozens of books and made millions of dollars and who I've heard at times preach well. I watched him on Dr. Oz last week talk about the four or five keys to success in life and never mention Christ once. You could go to some churches and hear a pastor preach five keys to this and six keys to that, and it looks exactly like the magazine you see when you're walking out at Wegmans. Six keys to success, five keys to a better sex life, seven keys to, to prosperity. You can hear a message from churches all over this country that would pass muster in any Mormon tabernacle or Jewish uh, synagogue or, or on Oprah or Dr. Oz or anywhere without mentioning Christ, the gospel, or Jesus at all. Here's how you get successful. Who cares when our kids are dying and have lost the gospel and don't remember the God who's redeemed them? They don't know the Jesus that's died for them and saved them and redeemed them. They don't know about the most important thing in life because we're more concerned about club sports than being in church on Sunday. This warning in Judges is dead spot on for us today. Are we communicating the truth of the God of the universe to the next generation? Are we preaching the gospel to those who so desperately need it? Are we remembering at the Lord's table consistently together what Christ has done for us? Amen? friend of mine was preaching about uh, why he does expository preaching. And you'll see here, I hope, at Renovation Church that we primarily focus on expository preaching, preaching through a book of the Bible, preaching through what the Bible says, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, as opposed to topical preaching, which sometimes can be very, very helpful. But consistently, we don't do that. We preach expository. And what was interesting, I just thought it was an interesting anecdote or an interesting story. He was talking about preaching, uh, doing expository preaching. And what he had one time is he was preaching a, a girl who had come to him, a college-age student, who had spent time in other kind of circle of churches that are a part of his circle of churches. And her home church was in another state. And she came here, and she was spending time with this particular pastor listening to him. And she came up to him afterwards and she said, Pastor, you know what's interesting, and I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but you talk an awful lot about sin. 
consistently week after week. You talk about sin. And I'm just not used to, in my 22 years of being in church, I'm not used to hearing about that all the time. And this particular pastor looked at her actually encouraged and happy. And he said to her, you know what? I never really consciously think to talk about it that much. But I'm not preaching topically and just coming up with a neat topic that I can throw some verses at every week. What I'm doing is I'm preaching through the Bible to do my best to figure out what it's actually saying to us, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, so I can preach what the Bible's saying. I'm not coming to the Bible with a topic and throwing verses. I'm preaching from the Bible to see what it's actually saying to us, and that must be what it's saying. You could preach for years topical message and topical messages and never preach the thrust of what the Word of God is actually saying to anybody because you're bringing to it the topic you want to talk about. It's important for us to get from the Word of God what the Word of God is saying to us so we remember and don't forget. Not that we completely forget, but so that the Word of God is more real to us and is louder to us than the astros and the bales out there that are screaming for our attention. Amen? We're so easily distracted, we so easily forget. We so easily lose our identity. Tim Keller says this, telling a story in the book, The Reason for God. And he's talking about this man who's not a believer, David Foster Wallace. And I just think it's an interesting quote that's really relevant. It should be up there for you. Everybody has to live for something. But Jesus argues that if that thing is not him, it will fail you. It will enslave you. Nobody put this better than the American writer and intellectual David Foster Wallace. Wallace was at the top of his profession. He was an award-winning, best-selling novelist who committed suicide in 2008. But before his death, he gave a famous commencement, I think at Stanford, address in which he said this to the graduating class. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. What an interesting insight from a man who's not even a believer. Everybody worships. What do you worship? What do we worship? What are we distracted by? What are we losing our identity to? What is that thing that is our identity? What is identity? Think about it for a moment. What is identity? Identity is anything you find, <coughs> excuse me, anything you find your purpose, value, significance, acceptance, or security in. Your identity, I'm going to say that again, is anything you find your purpose, your value, your significance, your acceptance, or your security in. What are those things that we're finding significance in? What are those things that we value so much? What are those things that we're finding uh, uh, 
our value in, our significance in, our security? What are those things that, me- that, that measure our security? Listen, if you worship health, what happens when you get sick? You worship your spouse? What happens when things are difficult or maybe you lose your spouse? You worship your children? What happens? The child is lost or rejects you. You worship financial security. What happens when the promotion doesn't come or the job doesn't work out or you experience difficult times or, or, or uh, there's difficult economic issues? <coughs> Recession. If that's the thing you worship, that's the thing that will devastate you. That's the thing that will eat you alive. That's the thing that will throw you completely tossed to and fro like someone in waves. I'm going to quote Keller again. Take a look at this. <coughs> Excuse me. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life. Thank you so much. Read my mind. <coughs> It's fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. What a quote. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, You'll be driven, a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you'll lose family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. You center your life and identity on money and possessions. You'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure gratification and comfort. You will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, some of you guys say stop, Jeremy, right? You center your relationships, uh, your identity on relationships and approval, you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad. Oh, my goodness. And demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. Here we go. Religious. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality... You will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
How true are those words for us? Where is our identity? What is it that we are worshiping? Is God truly on the throne of our lives? Do we find our value and purpose in Him? Listen, God is not a means to an end. God is not a means to success. God is not a means to prosperity. God is not a means to better relationships. God is not a means to you driving a nice car and people looking at you and saying, oh, isn't that great? He must serve God because he's so successful. What a garbage message that is. I don't want people to look at me and say, God must be great because I'm successful. I want people to look at me and see Jesus. God's not a means to an end. He is the end. He is who we get. He is the only thing that satisfies And when life is difficult, God is sovereign and he's in control. And he's the only one who satisfies. When we suffer, people will see in our suffering that God is faithful. And he's the only one who satisfies and brings joy. When we have success, people will see that God is faithful. But our success doesn't define us because he's the only one who satisfies. He is the end. He is who we get. He is our joy. Amen? My identity is in Christ. 2 Peter 1.9 says this, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We must be careful. I'm sorry. It's a different passage. 2 Peter talks about these qualities that come with someone who's wrapped their identity in God. Qualities that are, that are outcomes of our life. These things that, that, that become the reality of us who identify with Christ as our greatest joy and our greatest treasure. These are the things we are to pursue, amen, as our identity. I think I've beaten that horse to death. Anything other than God as your identity, those things will enslave you. And what we see in the passage of Othniel is that this doubly dark, bad guy king came and enslaved them because their identity was wrapped up in the bells and the astros. They had added that to their worship of God, and it enslaved them. And we see God's discipline in this. Unwelcomed grace of discipline. It's the second thing I want us to look at. We see as they have lost their identity as they've fallen from God, that God graciously comes to them and disciplines and chastises them. Right? Remember this as a parent? This is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you? Kind of. And we see moments in the lives of our children because we love them that we discipline them. If God was to leave us in our sin, we would probably enjoy it, right? But it would destroy us. And we see the people of Israel cry out under the pain of this eight-year oppression. God uses discipline to drive them back to him. And we see that God does that in our lives as well, does he not? God uses the church, God uses the body of Christ, God uses others to come into your life to bring discipline. I'll never forget a moment in my life (coughs) when I was heading 
down the wrong road, when I was going in the wrong direction. There's been many moments of my life like this. And, and, and as I stood amidst a, a group of people that I shouldn't have been around doing things I shouldn't have done in a dark place, literally dark place, and I looked around as a young teenage boy, I felt a, a, a hand on my shoulder and a word in my ear, what are you doing here? And I remember dropping the drink that was in my hand and looking to my left and thinking, what are you doing here? And it was a man who loved me enough to confront me and to say, cut it out. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. What are you doing with your life? Why would you be doing this? And I remember being angry at first, saying, don't tell me what to do. Who are you? And he loved me enough that he cared more about me than he cared about me liking him. And it brought conviction and discipline, confrontation. See, a friend who doesn't uh, have the idol of people liking them, but a friend who who worships God will speak difficult things into your life. That's why the, the body of Christ is so important. That's why the gathering together of people is so important. I need men in my life to look into my life and to speak truth, amen? It's hard to see the picture when you're in the frame. Sometimes we need others to come. And God brings other people into our lives. God brings difficulty. God allows difficulty in our lives to drive us to cry out to Him when we're distracted and worshiping idols. Amen? What we see here that's important is that God isn't responding because the people are repentant. A lot of people preach judges and say the people repented and then God came and brought a deliverer. We don't see that. What we see is that people cry out because they're in pain. Life is now uncomfortable, God. This is very difficult. It's not comfortable. It's not convenient. I don't like it anymore. And what we see is God respond not because of them, but because of him. Because he is a faithful God who keeps his covenant. That's the difference between the discipline of those he loves that are his children in the covenant and an ultimate discipline of those that have rejected him and who are outside of his covenant. I think it's important to look at that distinction. Barry Webb does that well. I didn't put this quote up there for you, but I want to read it for you. We must be careful, though, to distinguish between God's dealings with his children and his acts of judgment in general. Retribution, pure punishment, unmitigated by grace, is for those who are and remain outside his covenant, right? Ephesians 2, 12 says, having no hope and without God in the world. But what we see here, the final permanent expression of God's <coughs> retributive justice is hell. In Romans 14, 9 through 11. But within God's covenant with his people which he has promised never to break, a different kind of judgment takes place. The most appropriate term for it is discipline because it is corrective rather than uh, retributive and always tempered by grace. It can be severe, but its aim is always to reclaim rather than destroy. 
Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. Only those who utterly refuse to be disciplined become subject to retribution because as their conduct shows, they're reprobate and are not true children of God at all. That's Barry Webb in his commentary on Judges. So what we see here is discipline. We see a reclaiming of those. We see Hebrews chapter 11. We see God in his grace and in his love reclaiming those who have, have walked away from him. Hebrews 11.5, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Going on, 6 through 8. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Amen? And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what do we see? One of the marks of sonship, one of the marks of adoption, is that God brings discipline. He, as a gracious and loving God, does not leave us in our own sin. Amen? So as the people of Israel walk away, the people of Israel worship idols. He brings the doubly dark king, this bad guy. And they experience oppression for eight years. And then God raises up Othniel, delivers them, and they have peace for 40 years. Take a look at Ehud. Verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. This is after the 40 years of peace. Othniel dies, and then this happens. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now we see the oppressions longer. The bondage is longer. And we are beginning to see the downward spiral in the book of Judges. You know, sometimes when you um, get used to bondage, it takes longer before you cry out. When you get used to living like this, it takes longer before the pain and the discipline works. You know, I see it all the time as a prosecutor. I see people who are first sent to prison for like the first time in their lives and you see them come out in the orange jumpsuit and the handcuffs and their eyes are as big as saucers and they're think you can see it all over the face. Get me out of here, right? And then sometimes I'll be standing in court and I see guys who have spent so much time in jail and they're practically taking a nap in court. Just get me back to my cell so I can sleep. Get used to bondage. Get used to the oppression. There's no crying out. We see eight years of bondage, 40 years of peace, and now we see 18 years of bondage. Then, verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, 
the Benjamite, a left-handed man, which implies a right-handed disability. And this really implies in the passage and in their culture uh, an unlikely savior, not a guy they would think would be a great swordsman. He's right-handed, disabled, and he's using his left hand, a left-handed man. Who would think? Ehud. Nobody. That's what that's saying. A left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, by Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it in his right hand, I'm sorry, bounded it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Yes, he was. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute of grain, by the way, he was getting fat off all the grain tributes that the, he was forcing people to give to him, the Bible's first, uh, first ascent to a carb-free diet. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all the attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. That's why no one preaches this passage. <laughs> then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet. Now the people are going to follow him. In the hill country of Ephraim, then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel in the land had rest for 80 years. A little shout out to Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Ehud, what an incredible story. This unlikely deliverer. He comes, and Moab, the king of Moab, who is the Moabites, if you remember, the Moabites trembled. The Moabites were not a strong people. If you remember, when, when the people of Israel came to the land first, the Moabites trembled and were scared of them. And, and the people of Israel easily subdued him. And now we see this unlikely bondage, really. 
And, and the Moabites come, and God uses the Moabites to discipline the people of Israel, and the Moabites take over the people of Israel. This is unlikely bondage. These are not a strong people. And what do we see here is the power the people of God have isn't, isn't because of their armies, and it isn't because of their swords, but the power that the people of God have is directly connected to their relationship with God. Directly connected to their relationship with God. The stronger their relationship with God and their worship of God, the stronger the people of God are. And when they're distracted and worshiping idols, they're so weak that even the Moabites take them over. And we see this king who, who is incredibly fat. And we see Ehud who uses deception. And he comes into his chambers. There is uh, the Moabites. If you, if you look in their history, I don't have time to talk about it. The Moabites were perverted, perverted, perverted people. You know, later on you see the king of Moab uh, sacrifice his firstborn son as they're losing a battle. You see uh, just incredible sexual perversion. These are, these are a very, very perverted people. There is an, uh, something alluding here with Ehud as he straps the, the sword to his inner thigh, as he goes past the idols into the chamber and says, I have a word from the God for you. And, and uh, the king of the Moabites sends everybody out of the chamber. There's a little bit of a a perverted thing going on here in the mind of the king of Moab. And Ehud reaches down by his thigh, and the king of Moab in, in his perversion is thinking that he's got a message for him. If everybody understands what I'm saying. And Ehud grabs the sword, and he thrusts it into his belly. Thrusts it so far that the hilt of the sword goes in, and obviously his bowels are discharged. And, and the men outside of the chamber obviously are saying, hey, nobody go in there, right? And, and they're thinking, you know, nobody, and they're waiting outside until they become embarrassed. And, and what this story did for the people of Israel is as gross as it is, this was a story of great joy. This is a, a comedy. The people of Israel would, would tell each other this story and laugh. Ah, we killed the fatted calf. We killed the fat king. God delivered us. This was a story of joy, of unlikely deliverance from an unlikely bondage. This was a story where you read, behold, behold. Really, if you boil this down, you see surprise. It's, it's surprise that they would be in bondage to these people and a surprise that Ehud, the left-handed man, would, would have had conquered the Moabites. And it was a surprise to have this deliverer. And that's what we see here in the story of Ehud. This gift of deliverance. We see again the people don't repent. Life stinks. They yell for help. And God is faithful to his covenant. And really ultimately what Othniel and what Ehud, and I'm going to get to this now because I'm out of time, the most important point, what they point to is they point to the greater deliverer to come. Amen? We see that there's peace for 40 years because it's the years Othniel's alive. And he dies. But we have a Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father who will never die. We have a Savior that's risen again. We have a Deliverer that will not die, that has not died, that lives forever and reigns forever and, and has come and delivered us. He was an unlikely Deliverer, like Ehud. He was born in a manger. He was born poor. He didn't come rich. He didn't come powerful. He didn't come with trumpets glaring and great fanfare. He came into a manger in a small town. The incarnation of the God of the universe, the greatest deliverer that would defeat the greatest enemy, was an unlikely deliverer as Christ came in the way that he came. We think the doubly dark king is bad. 
We think the fat king of Moab is bad. Our deliverer has delivered us from the greatest evil there could ever be, the greatest enemy that could ever be, sin and death. Amen? Think about it. Our sin and our distraction destroys our families. Our sin and our, and our idolatry destroys our relationships. Our sin and our idolatry, if we were to continue in it, would ultimately lead to death, as Paul says in Romans. It would ultimately destroy us. But our deliverer came, and he destroyed sin. The power of sin in your life today is destroyed because of Jesus. The destruction and ultimate death that you would experience because of sin is taken care of and destroyed today because of his deliverance. Our identity, our redeemer, our deliverer who lives forever is Christ. And the, to the degree we worship and wrap our identity in him, we will have power over sin and death because of what Jesus has done. Amen? That is the story that is written. That is the, the type of the symbol of judges. That is what God has done for us. And there is nothing more important to talk about, nothing more important to remember, nothing more important to worship with our lives, with our purpose, with our identity, with our success, with our sexuality, with our bodies, with everything. Our identity and our worship and the thrust of our life should be directed to the only, one and only true God because of the one and only true deliverer. Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your delivering of us. We thank you for your discipline. We thank you that we're adopted as sons and that you treat us as such. You love us. We're your children, sons and daughters, because of Christ. Help us, Lord, to remember and to not so easily forget. Help us, Lord, to wrap our identity and our worship in you, to not add to it the bells and the asterisks of today. Help us, Lord, to hear these words, to see this history to be warned, to be motivated, to be driven, to worship you and worship you alone, to recognize that you're sovereign and you're in control regardless of circumstance, regardless of difficulty, regardless of success, regardless of prosperity. It's about you. You are sovereign and you're the only one who deserves to be worshipped. And at the end of the day, you're the only one we need. Let you be our joy. Let you be where our affections are drawn. Let you be the loudest thing in our ears. Help us to keep you loud, lest we forget to come to this place weekly and to worship loudly, to come to the Lord's table and remember to pass it on and preach it to our children. As I close in prayer, I know I'm supposed to be done preaching, but as our heads are bowed as we're closing in prayer, just feel that this passage is a call not to just to all of us, but a specific thing I want to mention to the dads in this room. We've already had Father's Day. 
There was a day in the life of pastors. Puritans used to talk about this often. The job of a pastor was to study the word, to engage in church discipline, and was to make sure the fathers in their congregation were training and catechizing their children. generation ago, most people in our day were catechized. They were raised, whether it be Catholic or Protestant, in the traditions and in the teachings of the church. And today we're letting our kids get catechized by TV and YouTube. Dads, moms and dads, it is time that we teach our children the ways of the Lord. At the dinner table, on the floor, in their bedroom. God, give us strength. Challenge us, convict us. Let us have your word on our tongues often as we speak with our families and our children. Don't let us leave it to the bales and the astros of their culture of this day. Don't let us leave it to their iPhones. God, give us the words to speak consistently, intentionally, your word to our kids. That they would know the one and only true God, the only one who will bring them joy and redemption and grace. Give us strength. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.